Welcome back to another episode of Discover Ag, brought to you in part by Case IH. I am your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And every week we are covering the top three trending news articles in the ag and food space. And this week, we have an extra special episode. We are going to have a mini interview at the end of this episode. It is in collaboration with the National National Cattlemen's Beef Association, uh, which is a contractor to beef checkoff. And we are going to be talking about basically how to incorporate beef into young kids' diets, uh, some baby-led weaning in there. It's a really fantastic episode. Obviously, if you're a mom with kids, it's really great, but there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, we bring on a registered dietitian named Katie Ferraro, who is a mom of seven. Can we all just pause and let that soak in? But she also specializes, as Tara said, in baby led weeding. So we really deep dive beef and its role in uh, children, which I don't think is talked about a lot. So I'm excited for this one. Stay tuned, you guys. Uh, make sure you listen in after we get done covering our top three topics this week. Before we dive in, I <laughs> want to ask you a little question, Natalie. Mm. How are you feeling about T-Swift and Travis Kelsey? Oh my gosh, you had to bring it to our space. Discover was the one space that wasn't going to focus on it. I couldn't let it go. So the thing is, is I have no dog in this fight at all. Like I I love Taylor Swift and what she's done, but I'm not a Swifty. Literally, Daniel and I don't watch football. Didn't know who Travis Kelsey was until this weekend. So like I am pretty degaff about this entire situation, but you are kind of upset about it. <laughs> I'm not upset and I'm not annoyed. I just can't find the right word that falls in between the spectrum of those two emotions. I don't know. I just can't turn a corner and not see it. I have bad news for you. Hmm. Uh, Producer Maddie just said... uh, (laughs) She loves them. She said, so I can't post my Travis and Taylor meme (laughs) on Discover Act today. No, go for it. Go for it. (laughs) She's also annoyed. down. Hail Mary. No, I saw that his um, jersey sales have increased by 400% after that one game. I'm like, this is just a PR stunt. You guys are all falling into it, but I think it it might be a PR stunt for him. I don't think it's a PR stunt for her as much. Like, I just feel like she's like at the top of her game and don't think she cares, but like maybe, I mean, I think she's super strategic, but I don't think it's as much a PR stunt for her. Um, I did think it was interesting on Thursday. I had to drive to Lubbock and I listened to Kristen Cavallari's new podcast and she had him on. And I was like, whoever decided to launch that podcast this week was genius. Cause I guarantee like, I feel like all the girlies that are listening to that podcast probably want to know what Travis Kelsey has to say right now. Well, I will say I'm a fan of his podcast. Like him and his brother together, I do think they're an affable duo. Look at that. Discovery word. Just using it in the wild. But I don't know. There's just something about this, the way we've all run amok that just works me the wrong way. Okay. Well, I won't make you talk about it anymore. It just surprised me because I feel like you're such a pop culture girly that I I was really surprised when you took such a stance on it. So Uh, speaking of football, though, did you see they announced who is going to be headlining for the Super Bowl? I did. We're going to be having Usher. I would sing right I know. now, but I can't sing. How? Are you excited about it? <laughs> um, Yeah, I think it'll be a good one. I saw the promo had uh, Kim Kardashian in it, so I was kind of like curious what role she would play in a halftime show, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it'll be good. I feel like he's like a really good dancer. Like, I think it'll be very entertaining. Um, and like, let's be honest, I feel like most people watching the football are, or Super Bowl are kind of like our age. So I feel like it's perfect for that target audience. 
It is interesting that you said that he's a good entertainer because I think there's a big difference. And I think we forget that when it comes to the Super Bowl. There's a difference between a good voice and an entertainer. And at first I was like, oh, but then when you think about it, like you said, it makes sense. It's all about the entertainment. It's about an actual show. It's about the people attending and putting on the performance. And I do think he will probably nail that out of the park. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my favorite, I've told you this, I think I've even talked about it on the podcast, like my favorite person to, to go to a concert for is Kid Rock. And it's not like he's like some incredible singer, but he is so entertaining to go and see live. Like he just commands the entire stage. And so I do think there is like something certain people just have, you know, are very charismatic and just like captivate you when they're on stage. Um, and so I do, I think Usher will do a good job. Listen, discos, I'm going to spill the milk here. Oh, no. Last we week, Tara talked so much milk. <laughs> Uh, earlier this week on our Tuesday personal episode, Tara talked about how she has two personalities, her very professional side and her very uh, anti-professional side. And let me just say, you are in for a treat if you get to experience Tara listening to Kid Rock. I'm just a different person when Kid Rock comes on. <laughs> Something overcomes your body. It it's an exorcism and you have to like <laughs> process through. It through really the kid is. rock <laughs> it really it really is um it's there it's a lot happening uh, i feel like uh daniel also just i feel like live music in a bar also turns me into a different person and maybe daniel too and i feel like when we were in florida all together um <laughs> luke and like ashley and manny well ashley had experienced it before but the husbands got to experience like me and daniel in the wild of being at a a bar with live music my husband's face when you and dan i don't remember what song came on but you and dan looked at each other and it was a moment where you're like, we're going out on the dance floor and this is happening. And I think Luke was like, wow. Who are they? These are not the same people that we I came with them. That is who I came here with. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, speaking of Daniel, uh, Daniel and Jax both had traumatic weekends. Do you want to go first? Yes. My brother-in-law was out in the yard playing soccer with Tad and Jax. And, or I mean, Jackson real. And then all of a sudden we came in and Jax's eye, you guys, it was ginormous. It was so big. It had to have been, it was Rue's head and it had to have just been the perfect contact, the perfect amount of pressure to just, I don't know. So Jax is sporting a pretty, pretty wicked black eye. Um, a little girl came up to him at school uh, and asked her mom how how much longer before Jax is back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> oh he was gosh. like turning heads at Tad's football game. The poor thing. He took it like a champ, though. He hardly cried. It's just it's hard to look at. Uh, yeah. First of all, side note. Uh, what did you say? Gigantic? No. Yeah. Gin ginormous Gin is not a word. Oh. It's either gigantic or enormous. So you made me laugh. That, so that's not our word of the week, obviously. But um, no, I showed a picture of Jax to the girls and the girls were like, oh my gosh. Like they, their faces were like, what mm -hmm. happened to him? And I was too. I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? And he just collided with his brother. But I, the reason I text you or you text me about Jax is because I text you, Daniel completely blew out his knee, dislocated his knee and ended up in an urgent care Sunday night. Um, and the best part was, it was during his dirt bike race. We like went down to South Texas for a dirt bike race and he did not blow out his knee on his dirt bike. He blew out his knee on a bicycle. <laughs> and that just is like, 
He's never going to live it down. I said he should start lying. Like he needs to tell a different story about what happened because it's super embarrassing. He did a wheelie and he looped the back tire, like came out from under him and he fell back on his bad knee. And he was like, it's fine, Tara. I can do wheelies. And I was like, well, obviously not. So like, don't do a wheelie ever again on a bicycle. So he is hobbling around. So we'll see how long this hobbling lasts. I think it might be a while. Stick to dancing to Kid Rock, Daniel. He has dislocated his knee dancing to Kid Rock one time as well. So maybe he just needs to just take things down a little bit. Maybe he needs to accept his, uh, he's headed into his late 30s and uh, life looks a little different after 35. (laughs) Oh. Okay, let's get into the articles. We have a lot going on today with our uh, mini interview. So we want to start by thanking our sponsor to the men and women at Case IH. Farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. All right. The first headline to discover this week, title U.S. Airlines Ally with Farmers to Seek Subsidies for Corn as Jet Fuel. U.S. Airlines are partnering with farmers to promote corn ethanol as a sustainable aviation fuel to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Yeah, the two airlines that are mainly doing this are actually United and Alaskan Airlines. And they said a big part of this is the ethanol uh, ethanol producers are looking for a new market as Americans turn to more electric vehicles, and so they need some kind of outlet for their product. Oh, that's extremely interesting. I missed that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I'm kind of surprised. I like. I guess that's just the where I ended up with this. And so, just some background: the U.S. biofuels industry is the largest in the world, and it has grown a ton since 2007 when the law um, was passed that forced blending and increasing the amounts of ethanol being added. And so, they have to have somebody like buying this product essentially do you ever get overwhelmed when you go to the guest tank to fill up and there's like five different nozzles and they're all blended in their percentages and you're like i don't know just give me the cheapest one <laughs> <laughs> yeah this weekend i filled up the tank of daniel's truck for him because of the knee situation and i'm not gonna lie i just like out of habit like started going for the gas like just you know i was in my zone so um, maybe we should all pay more attention because Daniel's truck is definitely a diesel. <laughs> so I should have paused for a moment, read all of the descriptions. Um, we have covered this before, something a little bit similar, similar historically. And for me, it kind of felt the same thing. There's a sense of urgency by airlines to incorporate this corn ethanol into the fuel mix. And on the other side of the boat, you have this resistance from like environmentalists who are concerned about things like clearing land for fuel crops. They did make this a little bit political and they brought in the Biden administration and how basically he's divided. And they talked a lot about like the modeling of it and who's going to get these subsidies, which is always a big word that love people's attention. Yeah, we're going to see that number again of or that year again of 2050. The airlines have pledged to be net zero by 2050. And we just we see that everywhere. Uh, And it is really there's a lot of people split. Like normally you would think about this as more being um, kind of, I guess, in the Democrats camp like renewable fuel, but they are very much split. So they have actually focused their lobbying campaign on tax credits, and they were able to kind of add that into the Inflation Reduction Act, which is obviously the landmark climate law that was signed by President Biden a year ago. And I did kind of read that. I know so many things got shoved into that act, but every time I read about something else, it's crazy what all was like pushed through in that I mean, the name is Inflation Reduction Act. Like, 
Mm-hmm. Why are we talking about tax credits for like lobbying for um, renewable fuels? Yeah, I was not shocked, like you said, to once again see either 2050 or 2030. I feel like we're all gung-ho for those two years, and we have <laughs> a lot of pledges and things on the line for those two different years. It was interesting, though. They were talking about how much more they were going to need to make of SAF, which is the sustainable aviation fuel. And we're talking like hundreds of billions of gallons, you guys, that need to be um, produced more to hit some of these sustainability goals. So it's no small task. Going back to how split this is, I said it was split like within like the Democratic camp, but also it's split among farmers. Like I feel like there is heated debate Mm -hmm. with ethanol among cattle farmers, obviously, who feed corn to their cattle do not always love the tax incentives and the rising of cost of corn because of ethanol. And on the flip side, typically row crop farmers are pretty for it. So it is just like I got really into this of like how debated it is among so many different groups of who agrees with ethanol production and who does not. One fun fact I did learn about uh, sustainable aviation fuel is that right now it's primarily produced from cooking oil or animal fats, um, which I did not know, but that's what they're where they're looking to expand into the use of corn ethanol as an alternative. Yeah, definitely. I, um, some of my quotes that I really liked were that ethanol gives the, or I don't know if I liked them, but they stood out to me is probably a better way to say it. Ethanol gives the illusion of climate action for these airlines while it reducing emissions less than other renewable sustainable fuels. So one of the issues with these tax credits, I think from like the environmental side of things, is if you are incentivizing just ethanol, a lot of money that could be going to research for actually a better solution may not happen because we're spending so much money and time on ethanol. And so that was kind of uh you know, I guess I a trail I wanted to like pursue more is like, what else are people trying? Like, what else are we looking into that maybe isn't getting the attention that ethanol is giving or getting? Hmm. If any discos have the milk, be sure to DM us on our Instagram page uh, and let us know if you're seeing things in this that, um, like Tara said, isn't maybe quite catching the headlines like it should be because that is really interesting. Okay, that's kind of all I have for that one. Um, But before we move on to our second article, we want to thank another sponsor, a longtime sponsor, Ringers Western Wear. Fun fact, I just got, I talked about how I got my whole package of Ringers in, but I have been wearing the work shirts and I actually wore it all weekend at the race this weekend and I loved it. It was 101, like so hot, so humid. I don't even know what the humidity was. And it was golden. So you sent me a photo. I actually have the exact same shirt and we are both equally obsessed with it. It's a good, it's a good summer color if anyone has their house of colors done. But when you sent it to me, it dawned on me why I love Ringer's workwear so much. Because traditionally, most button-up shirts are full length buttons. And I do feel like that is a little bit more of maybe like a masculine look. Like I have a lot of actually men's button-ups, pearl snaps that I'll like crop and wear. And so I do wear the full button-up all the time but I saw the partial button on you. And I was like, that's why I like it because it's still practical. It's still workwear, but it felt a little bit more feminine. And it was, it was so cute on you. Thank you. I was really feeling my outfit this weekend, the ringers, but I agree with <laughs> feeling you. myself. I really Dan's was. like, how did you get a photo of the race? And you're like, well, I have a lot I of got selfies. A selfie. 
I really, I liked my ensemble. I felt very like, um, very Australian. I got compliments or I, I, maybe they weren't meant as compliments, but men made comments that I looked Australian when I came out of the camper. Um, but I agree with you on the half button. They sent me a full button. And when I was packing, I was like, oh no, I want the half button. And I loved it. It did look very feminine, but like still practical. So do not sleep on Ringer's Western Wear. Go check them out. They have a U.S.-based website as well, even though they're based out of Australia. And you can definitely use our code at Discover to get yourself a discount. But I just feel like they have just a wide range. We've talked about their workout clothes, their work clothes. You love their t-shirts. Someone commented when we were down in Florida, it's all Luke Pack. It was like Ringer's t-shirts. You did. And you were like, wow, Luke really does like Ringer's. He is diehard. I am not exaggerating when I say he wants a closet full of ringers, t-shirts and long sleeve shirts. I will say I wore the work shirts when we were on sheep trail. And if a shirt can still make you look put together after 48 hours on sheep trail, it is a testament to how cute of workwear it is. And when we were out in the elements, um, doing everything we did on sheep trail, I was very happy to be clothed in my ringers Western. So like Tara said, go check it out. There is, um, it is Australian based, but there is a U.S. website, uh, so you can order directly from the U.S. And be sure to use code DISCOVER because it is going to save you money. All right. Second headline to discover this week titled Samsung announces global launch of Samsung food and AI powered personalized food and recipe service. Can I just say, is it bad that I am today years old <laughs> when I just connected that Samsung phones and Samsung cooking appliances are one and the same. My very first line is, it's funny to me to see Samsung getting into the food space. That was it. Then I came back and added to that note and said, oh, I guess they have a wide range of cooking appliances. Who knew? Like literally. Full circle. Yeah. Full circle moment for me. I had to go back and edit my notes. So um, yeah. So it actually makes a ton of sense because they Mm -hmm. want it to be like fully (laughs) integrated where you like are on your Samsung phone and you're at work and you realize you need to preheat the oven before you get home. And it is like, you can control your entire kitchen with this app is basically the goal, which it feels very 1999, a smart house, if I'm being honest. But there was some practicality to it as well. One of the sound bites was by connecting digital appliances and mobile devices across the Samsung ecosystem and assisting users from shopping list to dinner plate. Samsung food is using advanced AI capabilities to deliver a highly personalized all-in-one food experience that users can control straight from their palms. So I do, I'm a little split on this. On one hand, I think there's some really innovative things that could really take off, which we'll dive into. And on the other hand, I'm also like, you know, I just still love my recipe cookbooks and I still love like my good old traditional fashion time in the kitchen. And actually I hate having my phone with me in the kitchen and looking at the screen because I feel like that is one area I can be present and not on my phone. And so I think some of the features with it, I'm like, are people really asking for this or is Samsung just trying to deliver something that consumers aren't really even asking for? I would love to hear others people, but I think it's very split. I think there's people like you who love a cookbook. I rarely pull out a cookbook. I do everything (laughs) off of Pinterest on my phone. So I'm going to go ahead. And then I think about all of the people who commented on my very first online shopping experience or grocery uh, pickup service. I think people are, are clamoring for this. Clamoring. Did I use that correctly? I think so. Um, I think they want it, but I think that there will be people like you who will not see the value in this as well. So I wrote down the four key features are recipe discovery and personalization, 
tailored meal planning, connected cooking, and then social sharing functions. So the recipe discovery is pretty cool. It lets users save recipes to their personal uh, recipe box. And then the app analyzes them, standardizes their format and like organizes them. So very, I don't know, like Judy Jetson in the kitchen kind of. Uh, I thought the dietary requirements was really neat. The app enables food AI to directly change to save recipe. So the example they gave was if you had one you liked, you wanted to convert it to like vegan or vegetarian, it would make it very simple and straightforward to do that, which I do think we're living in a society of a lot of um, more dietary requirements and restrictions than historically. And so I could see this being a benefit to like a huge population. The social component, like you mentioned, is pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I think there's like three caps for Samsung across some of those different areas. Yeah, you can also upload recipes for seasonal availability, which I kind of loved. I know my sister has like a massive chart in her kitchen that shows what's in season and when. And so to have that like available in an app seemed cool. At the very beginning of the article, they didn't mention a lot about nutrition and they didn't mention anything about like climate friendly options, which is honestly where my mind went. I was expecting this app to maybe be like, well, if you substituted this in a recipe for this, it would be more nutrition, nutritional or like more climate friendly. And I didn't see a lot of that, but it looks like they're planning on building out more apps and like features into the future, including more like dietary, like nutritional components. I will say I was going to try since you and I both have iPhones, we can't download this. So I was going to download the app on Daniel's Samsung because I have a husband who still has an Android and I didn't get a chance. It was a missed opportunity, but I'm going to try to do it tonight. And maybe I'll post some of like the insides to discover stories on Thursday. So it's a more visual thing for you guys anyway, instead of just me, like me talking about it. But I will try to steal that Android and get that get that content for you guys, all you iPhone users. And that was one question I had. I was like, I wonder what the switch, the percentage of people who would leave iPhone if you did have a Samsung appliances at home would actually leave Apple for this integration, which I'm sure is kind of the whole big point, big picture for Samsung. But I'm like, oh, I don't know. Once you're an Apple, I feel like you're kind of an Apple. Yeah. I mean, I remember when like Apple TV came out and it was like the, po- I mean, not that people weren't already doing Apple, but definitely people moved even more to Apple to be able to have that like integration. And so, um, yeah, we'll see what happens with it. If I had to guess, Apple will just come up with their own and is like the exact same, <laughs> but an Apple spin Pull on of Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we will, we'll see what happens there. Okay, so wrapping up that article, before we move into our third article, I want to thank Good Ranchers, another one of our sponsors. Something you guys need to know, like seriously, do not fast forward through this ad. Uh, Good Ranchers, they are right now offering free ground beef for two years and their price lock guarantee for two years, but it is ending October 6th. So when this Mm. um, episode comes out, you'll have one more week to lock that in. It does not mean that they are doing away with their price lock for people who already have a subscription. That is still guaranteed, but you have to be subscribed before October 6th to get the two years of free ground beef and the two-year price lock guarantee. So do not sleep on this. If you have been on the fence about Good Ranchers, like now is the best time you can get your steak. You know, it's American meat delivered, get steak, get pork and get seafood. Like it has everything for you. We cooked the bacon this weekend. I just got my pork box. So we had the bacon, we had steaks out on the race. We've been cooking the seafood. We had salmon this week. Now is the time to get on Good Ranchers. So go to goodranchers.com, use our code discover to get $25 off your subscription. I will say when we interviewed Ben, who is the founder, we talked about this a little bit more about why the price lock feature is such a good uh, 
benefit, a good offer. Meat prices, you guys, the market works in an interesting way. It is not, uh, you don't see quick fluctuations and we won't see them within probably even a year in meat fluctuation prices. They will stay where they're at, if not continue to go higher, which is the whole purpose point and benefit of having those prices locked in. So it really is a incredibly high value that Good Ranchers is offering by locking you in. Yeah. So use that code discover, but um, I want to say on the price lock that price locks you till 2025. So like that's so far away. Like that's what you want is to price lock until then. Uh, so go ahead and get those orders in now before October 6th. Uh, Maddie said just signed up. Signed Woo-hoo, up. Yay. <laughs> getting that pork and that seafood. That's if you get that get, pork girl, get that pork. <laughs> yeah. If you already have your steak now that with how many different offerings they have, you can also get, you know, pork and seafood. It's so many different chickens. Options. We yeah, love sourcing chicken. chicken I didn't from even there. Say chicken, sorry. I will also remind you guys that we are doing our monthly giveaway for a swag bag, a thank you box for being a disco for tuning in. We love you guys. We appreciate you guys. And one way we like to say thank you for that, um, what you give to us is by giving back. So if you share us while you're listening today to social platforms, if you go leave us a review, which I'm going to kind of insert like a little bit of a sad face. It's been a while since we've had a review. So if you could hop over to, or not hop over to, because you're in your listening app, if you could stay in your listening app when this is done and leave us a review, we would so, 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 so appreciate it. All right. Getting into the last and final headline to discover this week, title, The Summer Food Went Weird. Searing heat reshapes U.S. food production. From wilting wheat to stress pollinators, U.S. farmers and fishermen see unexpected climate effects. This is a Guardian article, which we haven't had a Guardian article in a while. Uh, It was filed under environmental and then climate crisis. So it is very much about climate change. And I think my one of my negatives, as always in these conversations, is not one farmer was interviewed in the entire article about how climate is affecting them. And it was, again, a missed opportunity as always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is disappointing to always see that. Especially when it makes such sense, right? It's not like you have to <laughs> think out of the box to bring in the conversation. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it really is uh, heartbreaking to see that more farmers and ranchers aren't interviewed or um, brought to the conversation. And maybe maybe a little bit of a, that is on us. Maybe we need to be in more places or more open. Like maybe it's hard to source us. I don't know. But it is a trend across the board that farmers and ranchers, the producers, the people with their ground boots on the ground seem to kind of be left out of some of these conversations. Uh, we have covered a lot of food and weather, I feel like in the last six months, eight months. And I that's also not surprising, right? Like, I feel like if you are a farmer or rancher, everyone talks about how, you know, Mother Nature is like the beast that we are always up against. Um, but there has been, you know, a lot of articles about like the extreme of the weathers, like whether that's been peaches or like the flooding in California and losing vegetables. It, there is a lot of extreme weather. We've discussed whether that is heat or drought or heavy rains, like everything in extremes. Yeah. And we've seen it in the headlines, but we've also probably all experienced it. I know here in Nebraska, we had a week long stretch that was very atypical for us. I mean, we will get warm in the summer, but it was a long stretch, like four or five days of over 100 in a row, which there's a lot of places tuning in like Arizona, who said they had a record 31 consecutive days above 110. And I was like, woof, that is no reason to live there. But we've all experienced it. I think we can remember a point this summer where we probably had a very, very high temps. 
Yeah, July was the hottest month ever recorded. I know here in New Mexico, we had our hottest day ever recorded in September. We had over 100 in September, which is so out of normal for us. Um, We get over 100 regularly throughout the summer, but not like this year. This year was unbelievable. The Phoenix one kind of, um, I ended up thinking a little bit. I went to school in Arizona. So there's lots of people who would, I would move back to Arizona in a heartbeat. Oh, do not talk to me about that heat. But one thing we learned about in college and we, you and I actually talked about this with someone on a podcast recently is the urban heat island effect where the amount of concrete. And I did wish they had gone a little more into that about Phoenix. There's a few things I wish they had gone more into it about, but like Phoenix has never had as much concrete as they do now. So I am not saying that there's not changes and things aren't getting hotter, but it would be interesting to study what that amount of concrete in the desert is doing also to the the heat because you're just trapping more and more heat in Phoenix that you're going to have hotter and hotter temperatures. So one of the things I did like about this article is that I think naturally when we think of heat increasing, we think of stressed plants, which is very common. So we'll go to things like cotton we've talked about in Texas before, you know, you'll think of corn, soybeans. I mean, you think of more traditional crops and maybe that's just because they're traditional, but I feel like you just kind of focus on plants all the time. This article I thought did a really interesting and good job of bringing other aspects of the food system to the forefront and talking about heat is affecting them. So they highlighted bees. They talked about how bees pollinate about hundred commercial nuts and fruits and vegetable crops but extreme heat can affect the formulation or formation of pollen tubes, which diminishes the nutrient nutritional value of the flowers. And then the bees won't pollinate them, which you guys <laughs> save the bees. If we do not have pollinators, our food system is in trouble. They did have a lot of different things. You mentioned the cotton farmer. We're actually going to be interviewing a cotton farmer for a mini interview coming up in a few weeks in West Texas, so West Texas cotton farmer. Uh, And so that will be fascinating to be able to hear their perspective. But they also talked with Cal, or they mentioned they did not talk with the farmer, but they talked uh, about kelp farmers in Long Island and shrinking yields. Like who, you know, when are you thinking about kelp farmers? Like it was Mm -hmm. cool to see the different people or the different crops that they highlighted. They talked about heat stress for milk production, which dairy farmers, I mean, that's huge in the summer is how much less milk your cows produce because of heat stress. And then I also found it fascinating about the ocean temperatures. I don't know Mm -hmm. how much you looked at that, but Florida had ocean temperatures as high as 101, which can cause coral reefs to bleach. I do wish they had given more context. Like what is standard ocean temperature off the coast of Florida? Because they didn't have like a point of reference. Like is that one degree hotter? Is that five degrees hotter? Like how much hotter is that? One of the sound bites I really liked is how they were talking about it's not predictable. And so this was quoted from a professor from Tufts University, which we've talked about Tufts before, but we will not hold it against him. He said, it's really problematic if we use past disasters as the basis for which we plan for the future. The future is not going to be the same as the past. And I thought that was also a really interesting aspect to think about prepping for the food system, because that was kind of the next part of this article. And I thought it was really interesting that things were doing to approach the future of food, having to deal with some of these, you know, climate differences, I guess. Yeah, researching heat resistant crops is going to be huge. Like we think about drought tolerant crops. I know here in eastern New Mexico, that's a big one for us. But we also need to be looking at heat tolerant crops. And then um, kind of the unprecedented is that 
some crops will start thriving in different places and, you know, diminishing in other places. Same with animals. They said like one sea animal, they expected with rising to sea temperatures to see its population decrease significantly. I think it was sardines, but instead they saw it like flourish and they weren't sure why, because in other instances, heat has been bad for them. And so that is like, that's how extreme the unprecedented is, is that they can't even really predict which crops will do better where or which animals will thrive or not into the future. Yeah, it was the article. I will have to applaud them too because it was not written in a doomsday fearful way, which I really appreciated. But I did leave the article thinking maybe just more intent or aware about the future of the food system when it comes from this angle, which I appreciated. The last thing I'll add is I went down a little bit of a side tangent um, thinking about obviously this article was centered on the food system and what we can do when it comes to fighting some of these, you know, climate disasters. There was a ranch, they call it a ranch, but it's really like a community in Florida. It's called Babcock Ranch. It's 80,000 acres. And it is a climate proof town that Florida built. So Florida is more likely to flood than any other state. It has a six month long hurricane season. And so there was an architect that was like, okay, how do we build a weatherproof city? And the lakes double as like retaining ponds. They designed the streets in a certain way to like absorb rainfall. They did a bunch of these different things. And it just at a storm, Hurricane Ian, and you guys, it survived. It had minimal damage. There was not a single house that lost power, internet, access to clean water, the whole shebang. And I thought that is so interesting that we're at a point right now in history where we're not only thinking about food systems and how to make them more resilient, but actual towns in some of these locations. I mean, you think about some of those coastlines and houses, you've heard stories in the news of like a Mm -hmm. single house that's been rebuilt like five times, you know, that it just continues to happen over and over. So, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. It costs our country, I mean, billions and billions of dollars to rebuild every time something happens. So, All right, you guys, that wraps up our topics for today. Time to get in our interview with Katie Ferraro from the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast in collaboration with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, a contractor to the Beef Checkoff. Katie Ferrero is a registered dietitian and mom of seven who specializes in baby-led weaning. She teaches nutrition at San Diego State University and hosts the top-rated parenting podcast, Baby Led Weaning Made Easy. Katie is the founder of the original 100 First Foods approach to baby-led weaning, and her program has helped tens of thousands of parents, caregivers, and healthcare providers give their babies a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Welcome to Discover Ag, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so to kind of kick us off here, I kind of want to give have you give some background of what baby led weaning is. I know with my oldest, I did not do it. And then I feel like it was kind of trending more. Or there was more news around it with my second child who's now six. So I'm definitely more familiar with it after my second child. But for people that are not familiar with it, what is it? What What do we need to know about baby led weaning? So baby led weaning, I know it's a mouthful. I remember the first time I heard the term, I was like, baby linguini? What are you? <laughs> <laughs> like that baby sounds delicious. Led weaning essentially is an alternative to conventional adult led spoon feeding. And in this approach, babies learn to feed themselves wholesome, safe foods that are offered by their parents and their caregivers. So as a dietitian, I love it because it's a responsive feeding method. It supports the baby's inborn ability and their desire to be an active participant in the transition to solid foods because babies don't need us to feed them. What they need is lots of time to learn how to feed themselves. 
So Natalie, actually, she will say she can jump in when we were researching this. She did not realize this was what it's called, but this is absolutely what she did with her kids. So kind of funny. Um, Nat, you want to share a little? Yeah, no, I knew that's what it was called. I just never, I guess I never intentionally chose it because as Tara mentioned, there was like press around it or encouragement around it. I'm going to be very frank and honest. I'm sure there are moms tuning in that can kind of relate, but it was easier for me, right? If I could have my baby be feeding themselves, (laughs) I could be, you know, doing something else or like work. I mean, I just had other children. So I feel like it was conducive to um, that autonomy, I guess, that I was like, I encourage in my children a little bit. And so, um, yeah, I think I just maybe come from it from like a little bit different of a parental approach, maybe. And that's fine as well. We tell parents, you know, at the end of the day, this is nothing new. As a parenting term, it is relatively new. As a parenting phenomenon, the baby-led weaning approach, the philosophy is actually millennia old because, you know, different cultures and ethnic groups around the world have historically offered and continue to offer their babies just modified versions of the same foods the rest of the family eats. Often tell parents like, you know, what do you think cave mama fed cave baby back in the day before there was like an entire aisle of pouches at Target, right? Like commercial baby food, it's a largely Western invention, has really only been available and marketed since the earlier part of the 20th century. I do think that's a very interesting thing about our society. We will take things that, as you mentioned, have been around for centuries, decades, a very long time, and then we'll slap a label on it and we'll act as if it's kind of brand new uh, information for all of us. One thing I want to dive into right away, because I do think it's very important and definitely plays a role when it comes to foods we're choosing for our um you know, babies at these age is the dietary guidelines. So I know that they recently were changed. Um, If you could kind of walk our listeners through that about the changes of the dietary guidelines, you know, what that looks like for the the littles now um, and how that affects what we're choosing as parents to put on their plates. And that's what's hard for a lot of parents. They're like, wait a minute. When I did solid foods, I know, Natalie, you have a large span of age between your oldest and your youngest. And things change a lot, especially you know, with regards to the introduction of allergenic foods, for example. You know, when I was going to dietitian school over 20 years ago, we learned the practice of we wait until one, two, and three years old for certain allergenic foods. And now with all of the new research, we know actually the earlier introduction of the allergenic foods is what's protective. With the dietary guidelines, things have changed a lot as well. And so with the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines, that was the first time that they included recommendations for children under two years of age. And so these recommendations encourage parents to consume, or not parents, but to to include a variety of nutrient-dense foods. So we're not talking just like, you know, rice cereal. And actually almost every major health body recommends against the regular use of rice foods for babies now because of the potential for arsenic toxicity. So when we're talking about, you know, the weaning diet, we need foods that do include a variety of different nutrients and textures and those allergenic proteins. So we want foods that are iron rich, foods that have zinc. And as a dietitian, my approach is always we should teach babies how to eat food-based versions of these. We don't need to rely on supplement programs. We don't need to rely on fortified foods because babies can eat foods that are naturally good sources of 
those ingredients or those nutrients like iron and zinc. Yeah. So you have said the word iron in there a lot. And I feel like, you know, when I hear the word iron, I do think of meat, which you talked about, which I think is something that does scare a lot of people. I know I, especially with my youngest, fed like a lot of steak. And when I was with other moms, it would make them really nervous to see her like at, you know, not much past six months having different pieces of steak, obviously like cut appropriately, sized appropriately. But I had learned a lot about, you know, the importance of iron in those diets uh, between six and 12 months. And that, you know, at six months of age is really when that iron store depletion is when we kind of start seeing that, that they are depleting their what's stored up in their body. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that, about why like iron and specifically, you know, beef and steak. Well, I think of steak, but obviously it could be ground beef. There's lots of different options with uh, beef. Why it's such an important for this stage of life. And I love this question, Tara, because I think sometimes we want to be educating parents about iron, but not stressing them out. And so what you said is correct. You know, the the big chunk of iron that babies get from their mom at the tail end of pregnancy, that covers them for about the first six months of life. And that's at a period where they're only drinking infant milk, right? Breast milk or formula. And while, you know, breast milk contains iron, it, it is a really, really good and very easily absorbed form of iron for the baby. And if you're offering formula, it's fortified with iron. So you're kind of covered for iron for the six months, first six months, which is good because like you got a lot of other stuff going on to get used to. But starting at around the six-month mark, the iron that the baby got from mom at that tail end of pregnancy, it does start to dissipate a bit. It doesn't go down to zero overnight because we have these parents that are like, oh my gosh, my baby needs to be eating all iron foods right at six months. No, that's not the case. Breast milk and or formula will continue to be a good source of nutrition for your baby even after you start solid foods. But yes, we want to incorporate iron containing foods, and we can look to foods that are natural sources of that. So for families that eat animal foods, foods like meat and fish and poultry and beef, as you mentioned, not only contain iron and zinc, very valuable nutrients, but they provide wonderful taste and texture opportunities for our babies. So I just had a baby over last week we were working with, and on the first week of baby led weaning, we introduced a meat. This family eats animal foods. One of my favorite cuts of beef for baby led weaning is a beef chuck roast. It's very affordable. It's very, very, it's not intimidating. Sometimes parents are like, I don't know how to make meat. Like, listen, can you, do you have an Instant Pot? Do you have a beef chuck roast? Do you have four cups of no salt added beef broth? Combine them, put it on high, come back six to eight hours later. You've got these nice, soft, shreddable strips of meat. And my my mantra is always, if you can shred the meat between your finger and your thumb, then it's safe for your baby to eat with their gums. One thing that I felt like with baby lead weaning is kind of that healthy relationship with food was something I noticed that it was just like a part of our family dynamic. Like the baby was much more included in like, uh, we sit down as a family almost every night for dinner. And so they were just a part of that then, even all the way down to what was on their plate. And I just, I felt like it really kicked off that start of like healthy eating or healthy relationship with food as well as healthy eating. And like you said, them picking exactly what they wanted versus what they didn't, but like the variety was there. But it kind of makes me wonder, you know, we talked about that the dietary guidelines have changed. And I guess my question is like, why now? Why are we just having conversations about these earlier years and these earlier months? Like, why hasn't this been a part of the the conversation for longer? Well, <laughs> we could talk about the dietary guidelines <laughs> and all the inherent challenges with that for, uh, you know, episodes. But if we look at the fact that it's not ethical to design a study whereby you would deprive one baby of zinc and the other one would get extra zinc and iron, right? A lot of you know nutrition research 
in general is based on some challenges, right? A lot of it's self-reported data. Um, a lot of it is we're, we're extrapolating from breast milk, like from zero to six months of age, we know that breast milk is sufficient to meet a baby's needs. So it's really easy to back your way into some recommendations for the zero to six month phase. Six to 12 months is super hard though, right? Because we've got breast milk at play or formula plus the introduction of solid foods and the complementary foods. So we don't know exactly quote unquote how much a baby needs, but it is exciting that for this first time, the new dietary guidelines did talk about birth to 24 months. And it's like, what have we been doing for, you know, all of the previous iterations of the dietary guidelines, like just pretending that babies don't exist? No. And honestly, a lot of what parents know about infant feeding, unfortunately, is guided by the commercial baby food industry. So I think what you're starting to see right now, especially with the dietary guidelines, is the application of this real incredible body of research that supports a baby's ability to feed themselves and a wide variety of foods. And it doesn't have to come from fortified processed baby foods. I agree. I do think it's really exciting to see that shift um, kind of in the mentality from both the guidelines side and then also the parent side about kind of embracing this new thought process um, of, of food and, you know, what's important and what, what we should be considering. I think switching gears a little bit, you know, one thing Tara and I get asked all the time as farmers and ranchers is questions about sourcing and choosing beef. You know, we believe and we promote that beef is nutrient dense regardless of the different production practices available to ranchers and farmers. Um, but I would love to get your opinion on that and hear it through the lens of a dietitian when you get asked about, you know, sourcing beef when it comes to feeding it to our littles in the baby led weaning. Well, I feel like for families that eat animal foods, they're like, I love these foods, but my baby can't eat them. And so we like to kind of help dispel that myth by showing you how to make these foods safe. So as I mentioned earlier, I never do solid pieces of meat. Like if it's pork, I don't do pork chops or steak. I don't do steak early on when you start solid foods. We like those nice, soft, shreddable pieces of meat. And a lot of families are like, well, I don't know what 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 that entails. And so when it comes to selecting cuts of beef for your baby, we suggest looking for the fattier cuts. Sometimes these tend to be the the in some cases a little bit more on the affordable side. It kind of depends what cut you're looking at. It depends what part of the country you're in. We've done all these interviews with different butchers who are like, oh, we call it this on the East Coast or that on the West Coast. But at the end of the day, we're we like that fat because when you cook a protein like beef, the fat melts, it liquefies, and it coats those protein strands, and it actually makes it easier for babies to swallow. So I don't do the extra lean. Like let's say you're picking ground beef. I wouldn't do extra lean ground beef for babies. I want some of that marbling. I want that fat in there so that when I cook it, again, that fat is liquefying and it's making it safer and easier for the baby to swallow. Yeah, you've covered. Um, today, you've mentioned so many different things that actually we've kind of touched on in on the podcast, whether that be we've talked about allergens recently, we've talked about heavy metals in foods. Um, we've talked about food varieties related to heavy metals. And so it's been really fascinating to be able to hear about it from the perspective of feeding our littles, right? Like beyond just our diets and into our kids. Um, so I guess my next question is really more about resources. If parents have questions about baby led uh, weaning, where can they go for resources to help them kind of like continue on this path, learn more and be able to consume more information about it? 
I'm a big podcast person, actually have a podcast as well, Baby Led Weaning Made Easy. If you like learning from podcasts, we're about 350 episodes into our podcast covering every little topic that you can possibly imagine about starting solid safely with your baby. But there really is value to seeing a baby feed themselves. And so I do also teach a free online video workshop. It's called Baby Led Weaning for Beginners. It's 75 minutes, but we go through the whole gamut of starting solid food safely and how to make foods like meat safe for your baby and how to do the allergenic foods. And I also give everyone on that free workshop a copy of my original 100 First Foods list. So if you're if you're short on ideas, I like. I never want you to run out of ideas of foods that your baby can eat. Yeah, I spent a second on your website, or maybe a few more than a second, but um, it was a wealth of knowledge. It was definitely something I wish I would have had at my fingertips when I was, you know, in this stage of my parenting. Because you, as you mentioned, you just you have workshops, you have the podcast, you had um, there were so many good guides. You also had like downloadable things that um, parents could really utilize. So I think if yeah, you are, parent- I really just built like the program that I was so frustrated. I started solid foods with my oldest. I did listen to my doctor started at five months. She couldn't even sit up on her own. She hated being spoon fed. I was like, this is, this is terrible. I, I, I felt like a failure as a mom because I couldn't feed my baby. And then my my next set of babies were quadruplets, actually. And that's when I first heard about baby lead weaning. And I was looking for an alternative to force feeding babies by spoon because it didn't work with one. And I remember thinking like, how am I going to feed these four babies? And I can't even feed the one I have at home. And this whole baby lead weaning approach became you know such a transformative experience for our family. It actually shifted the entire focus of my dietitian career to do baby lead weaning exclusively. And I, I built like our... Our 100 first days meal plan is like exactly the program that I wish I had when I was like, I don't know what food to feed next or which texture can I do next? Or is it safe for my baby to have this now? So I I built the program that I wish I had with my oldest so that parents don't have to think about it, but they can be helping their children establish this foundation with the variety of those nutrient dense foods. So piggying back off of Tara's questions um, earlier, vice versa. If parents have questions on beef products, what is, do you have a favorite go-to source for that um, when it comes to baby lead weaning and introducing beef into their diets? So I do always recommend getting your feeding and nutrition information from a credentialed feeding expert. I know we're doing this podcast in conjunction with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, their contractor to the Beef Checkoff. They have some good resources online. I've actually helped to some degree with the development of some of them. Um, but they have a Beef It's What's for Dinner, the early years. They have a page there. I don't know if you can link it in the show notes. Um, and there's an infographic that kind of gives some ideas about how to safely choose these different cuts. I know I use their resources all the time, like for the selecting the cuts of meat, because I'm not I'm not a butcher. I, I don't have an ag background. And sometimes it is intimidating when you get to your store and you're like, can my baby have this? Yes or no. So I think that they are a valuable resource. And I appreciate that they utilize registered dietitians in the creation of their nutrition education material. Yeah, we will link to all of that in the show notes, as well as your resources, your website, and as well as like Beef What's for Dinner, the early years, um, and all of those fantastic resources you mentioned. So thank you, Katie, so much for sharing your expertise with us today. It has been really fascinating conversation. Like I said, I felt like it really tied in a lot of topics we've been talking about, but back to our little ones. And I really know our community will love this, learning more about how to feed our kids. And uh, once again, this episode is in collaboration with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, a contractor to the Beef Checkoff. So thank you to NCBA. And we will see you guys next week. 